Welcome to the House of Jordans podcast, episode 19 on BenchClear Media Network. Be sure to check out the great BenchClear Media content at benchclear.us. Indeed, welcome. Uh, my name's Chris. You can find me on Instagram at Chris underscore HOJ. You can find me on Twitter at House of Jordans. And now we have the entire House of Jordans family on Twitter as well as Instagram. Yeah, I'm Brian. You can find me at uh, Joden Cards on Instagram. And then now on Twitter, Joden Tweets. So, so J O E D I N Tweets. Whoa. And I'm Christina. You can find me on instagram and twitter i make it easy for you at the same place k-r-i-s-t-i-n-a-s-p-c and you may notice that there were some there was some new information in our show introduction particularly that uh, the house of jordans is now very proud to call itself a member of the bench clear media slash podcast network uh, we are one of four channels providing content on that network Alongside Pat Geek, who can be found on YouTube, Breaker Culture, which is a podcast as well as a YouTube content creator, and the Wax Museum podcast. I'm very uh, excited to be a part of this network. Yeah. And, you know, we've ramped up our content to now coming out once a week. And uh, it's absolutely a blast um, and a privilege to be a part of this network. So yeah, go ahead, check out benchclear.us. Yeah. Um, along with that, I think we have some new giveaway information. Yeah, so go check out benchclear.us and also follow Benchclear Media and all of our Twitter accounts or Instagram where we have posted information about giveaways. Benchclear is giving away product for pretty much the next two weeks. So uh, you'll see information on all of our accounts that give you directions on how to enter these giveaways. And House of Jordans will have two specific giveaways that are geared towards our listeners and our podcast. That's right. So you can look for our first giveaway, not in this episode, but the next one. We still haven't figured out exactly what we're going to do. We're going to run some type of contest um, that's particularly tailored to listeners of this show. And some of our quirks. But uh, in addition to our giveaway, like Christina said, Bench Clear is currently doing giveaways as we speak on Twitter. And the giveaway that they started yesterday and that concluded today, the first of many, was a 2019-20 Optic Cello Box. Uh, so that's a really nice product. Yeah. yeah. And I was jealous I couldn't enter the there's giveaway. There's going to be a lot more giveaways happening of that caliber throughout the month so get on twitter follow and retweet follow and retweet all right so now i'm going to preview the contents of today's show first we're going to talk about the nba season briefly as we approach 20 games remaining then we're going to talk about the rookie card boom that has recently kind of taken over the hobby feels like the whole hobby doubled in value over the last weekend and it was uh, bizarre. But um, really, when you kind of look at the data, it's been ongoing for the last two months. And we're going to, in the typical House of Jordans fashion, do a deep dive into that. And then our final segment, we'll talk about the near-term future of the card market from the perspective of certain exogenous variables, such as the stock market. But before we get to those segments, uh, Brian has a new mail day. Card that you won maybe a week or a week and a half ago at auction. Yes, I do have uh, quite the mail day. It is a uh, 2018-19 Panini Chronicles gold 
Luka Doncic Phoenix card. Um, we ripped the Boxer Chronicles, and it's a really fun product. Yeah. All, like, rookie-centric um, and lots of, like, numbered stuff. But this is one of the cream of the crop cards out of that product. Yeah, I I, I think so. I mean, seeing this thing in hand is definitely uh, something else. Yeah, so the auction scan of the auction that you won. Yeah. Uh, did not do justice to no. the in-hand presentation of this card because it has this incredible refractor finish to it. It does, and like the card's very, it has like a very uh, kind of chrome finish to it, so it doesn't really pick up in the scan for like any refractor whatsoever. So it just looks like a, a matte card, essentially. Some of the stuff that jumps out to me about this card, the Mavs logo looks incredible Yeah, on the card, and I like the photo of Luca. And the design is um, impressively intricate. Yeah. And, you know, it's a card that you can kind of gaze at for a while yeah. and find something different and appealing about it. You know, and those are my favorite types of cards, personally. Yeah, I agree. I think it just, to me, it has like a nice, like, kind of almost elegance to it, kind of like with the Prism. Like, the Prism has a similar, like, feeling to me as what this kind of i would say like this product relates to it mostly um i really just like even the base of this like the silver just like it's not a silver but it's just like you know like a chrome finish just looks like a sweet card to me you know it's a cool card i think it's an awesome card i really like the blue and gold yeah and like chris said the mavericks logo fits in perfectly with that blue like it just it looks really nice i really enjoy the geometric shapes behind it it looks futuristic and yet also something that like hieroglyphic kind of. So yeah. it's this like weird blend of old and new mm-hmm. to give a really cool look on this card. Uh, I really I think it's a cool card, Brian. Yeah, I'm pretty happy to put this one in the PC. So, Brian, congratulations on the acquisition. Christina and I have been, um, you know, in a major drought. And one of the reasons for that is because product this year is incredibly expensive mm-hmm. for reasons that we're soon to discuss in this podcast. Not just this year's product, but product like a- across years yeah. is insane like 2018 right now. stuff. Like, is, yeah. like we used to be able to buy it. Like, yeah. <laughs> we used to be able to. Yes. I did buy a 1819 cello pack, uh, box from Jaspies two weekends ago and we have not opened it but chris took it away from me no it's just sitting <laughs> it's hidden it's hidden it's hidden literally so hidden it. yeah it's literally hidden but he knows i don't go searching for things so if you hide it then it'll you, stay hidden okay yeah. but if you leave it on the table like i left it on the counter in a bag and, you'd, and you'd then the it. bag was still there but the box was gone okay because someone took it and hid it that's funny you say you don't go searching for things I remember my brother one time bought her a big old bag of candy. <laughs> and then I took it and hid it somewhere. And she found it in five minutes. When <laughs> I want, when I really. <laughs> yeah. Okay, girls and chocolate. Like, you can't take chocolate away from girls. Well, I think sure. that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think you know where the box is. I think, I think uh, you're letting on that you don't. I really don't know where I it is. I think you know where it is, but you're not opening it because it just, I haven't felt compelled to open it 
to be completely honest with you. Like, first of all, I'm very happy with the cards we have right now. Maybe Luca needs to win a game for us to open it. We'll get into that in a second. But I don't know. I'm very happy with the cards I have right now. I'm enjoying them. You know, I'm kind of watching the market do really interesting and new and bizarre and worrisome, perhaps, things lately. And I don't know. Just the box sitting there unopened is kind of like a metaphor for how I am looking at the hobby right now. <laughs> it's like this valuable box that I'm not quite ready to open yet. Or ready to let me open. So is your decision like you're either going to sell it or you're going to like no, open we're, it? No, there's no selling boxes you're just, in So this you're house, just like, Brian. well, hold on. How many episodes right. have you been listening to? Why do you think my box is hidden from you? <laughs> <laughs> because there's no <laughs> I could see boxes. Christina like, a, you know when you catch a little kid doing something bad, like they got chocolate all over their face and you, just, <laughs> you see him sitting on the floor and they did i could see christina in brian going over to brian's house one day when brian's out of town or something, <laughs> sitting on the ground tearing it open you know drool falling down her face and then brian hitting comes home. the one of three luca oh, well God. brian i think would forgive you if if that happened. if that happened yeah that, that's like the one condition yeah all right so enough about that first topic on today's episode is the current NBA season. And so we all just watched a very painful Mavericks loss to the Bulls tonight. The Mavs fall to 37 and 25. Yeah. The Bulls improved to 21 and 40. And the Bulls were without Zach Levine, but Otto Porter had his first game back. He played very well. Kobe White played very well. I don't remember exactly how many points White had tonight, but in the prior three or four games, he's averaging like 30 points. Uh, when we went and saw. The Mavericks play the Bulls in Dallas. One of the remarks that my dad, who used to coach basketball, made to me was that Kobe White, he thought, was a very promising player simply because he had the ability to create his own offense and get by guys and score. Yeah. And he does have that. Definitely. And he's a good shooter. Yeah. But the Bulls' offense and their system and their team is just kind of out of whack right now. So it was a disappointing loss. The Mavericks were up by 10 points at the half. And then they completely blew it in the second half. The game concluded with a score of 108 to 107, but it was not that close. No, not uh, at all. It was actually astonishing, like how it ended. Yeah, the, it, the Bulls, in typical bad team fashion, nearly choked away the game. Yeah, when Kleber was able to steal an inbound and get a dunk, then the very next inbound was stolen, and it led to a three, and then. Yeah, it was a bizarre ending, but it was a tough loss and a game that the Mavs deserved to lose. Definitely. And, you know, they were without Porzingis, they were without Curry, they were without Brunson, who's injured and is going to be out for an extended period of time. So, you know, the rest of the guys on the team were on the second day of a back-to-back on the road. Mm-hmm. So that kind of explains why you might see towards the end of the game, especially down the, the second half, down the stretch, that guys are just kind of running out of gas. But Luka didn't play yesterday. And he did play today, but he's also suffering from a thumb injury that he suffered a few days ago. Right. So there's lots of little things kind of plaguing the Mavericks right now. Luka had 23 points, 9 assists, and 5 rebounds in 38 minutes. And that's something I want to comment on briefly. Luka's minutes have gone up lately. Yeah. Uh, typically, he's been playing between 30 and 33 minutes, 34 minutes throughout the course of the season. But the last few games that he's played, he's been playing 38 minutes. And that is preparation for the playoffs. Yeah. Because when the playoffs come, yeah, he's probably going to play at least that many minutes. Yep. 
if not more. In Luca's last five games, he's averaging 27 points, nine rebounds, and nine assists in 33 minutes per game, which is pretty close to his season averages, which are 29, nine, and nine in 33 minutes per game, and a player efficiency rating of 28.4. The top five player efficiency ratings for the month of February were Jokic, Porzingis, Doncic, Antetokounmpo, and there's one other guy. I forget who it was. Harden, maybe? Harden. Absolutely. Those are the five top PERs uh, in the month of February. Very nice to see two Mavericks in that grouping. Yeah. Uh, but not with... Porzingis had a crazy game last night. Well, that's what... The one bright spot that the Mavericks can point to from the perspective of star power, aside from the fact that, like, Seth Curry is playing extremely well, Tim Hardaway's been playing well, Porzingis has been playing exceptionally well. He was named the Western Conference Player of the Week coming off his performance yesterday in which he had 38 points, 13 rebounds, 5 blocks, and 4 assists in 37 minutes. He's the only player in NBA history to have multiple games of 35 points or more, 5 or more 3-pointers made, and 5 or more blocks in the same game. In other words, that stat is instructive because it kind of indicates what a unique skill set he has of yeah. scoring, 3-point shooting, and defending and he's doing it all, you know, from the height of seven foot four or whatever he is. Right. Three. Truly three. the the Boban is seven three or seven four. So the next task for the Mavs will be playing the Pelicans on Wednesday night. At home. At home. So that's gonna be the showdown of, you know, probably the two biggest prospects in the NBA right now. But let's look forward to the playoffs briefly. Really the hobby action is happening in the Western Conference. And I pulled up the basketball reference playoff probabilities report for the West which is basketball references, analytics-based prediction of where teams will finish the regular season. They're predicting the Lakers are going to finish first, the Clippers second, the Rockets, and the Nuggets. They're projecting 54-28 and 28 record for both of those teams, so they're statistically tied for third in this model. They project the Mavericks and the Jazz to both finish at 50-32, and 32, tying for fifth. They project the Thunder to be 49-33 and the seven seed. So five through seven are separated by one game in this statistical model. And then in the eight seed, they're currently projecting, even after the Grizzlies defeated the Lakers this weekend and the Pelicans lost to them, they're projecting the Pelicans and the Grizzlies to both finish 38 and 44. And that is really like the concentration of a number of interesting topics. So first of all, whoever gets that eight seed is probably going to be the team that has the rookie of the year on it. Because while John Morant has been exceptional, Zion has been, uh, you know, all-star caliber, right. dominant force who gets better with each game. And, you know, the, the reasoning seems to be among the journalists and the writers um, whose podcasts I listen to is that if Zion is able to get into the playoffs with the Pelicans, that he'll, that'll make a very strong case for him to be rookie of the year. And if he doesn't, and John Morant gets into the playoffs with the Grizzlies, then that's going to clinch the Rookie of the Year status to go to Ja. And I presume that if like the Kings or some other Trailblazers or somebody else kind of sneaks in and gets the eight seed, then it'll probably go to Ja Morant. But from the perspective of the hobby, you can either have Zion getting into the playoffs and having potentially anywhere from four to seven more games yeah. and more anticipation and hype and enthusiasm but it can go two different ways right like whoever ends up playing the lakers in the first round if they get swept 4-0 and they look not so great that might actually kind of 
mute some of the enthusiasm. I don't know. What do you what do you think about from the hobby perspective this race for the eight seed that's coming up and the two rookies who are leading those respective teams? Well, I think you really just have to think about, like you're saying, if if either of those players gets into the playoffs, I think there's gonna be some kind of hype and anticipation built around them. Even in the first round, that's where we saw even last year where key players cards that were in the playoffs went up and it's going to be the same thing for rookies so ideally what you want to do is just predict and you know say what is what do you think is going to be the eighth seed and and go for that rookie you know and it could be zion it could be Ja. i think that zion right now is expensive uh i think it's valid like his price built into him because he's really a dominant player but compared to somebody like jaw like jaw has a lot less like cost, you know, for that kind of bane of your buck, I would say. Yeah, you actually texted me today and you were like, hey, I'm thinking about getting some jaw cards or some Zion cards. I'm just yeah. not sure who to get because this playoff race is like neck and neck. And I was like, that's Pretty interesting. Much, Let's yeah. look at some of the models that are predicting which team might, you know, finish in that eight seed. Right. And then I looked up this basketball reference model and it was a prediction that said both teams are right. tied, uh, 38 and 44. In this model, so that was going to come down to the wire. That's you know, looks like a coin flip. Yeah, and that's going to be really interesting to see. You know, leading up to the playoffs, even like how is that going to build? Because I think that the players' cards, just like we've seen in you know other sports, like Pat Mahomes when he when his car went up with anticipation, essentially, um, I think you're just going to have an anticipation rise. You will. And then a drop-off, too, which is what Mahomes right. had as well. Right. Once his season concluded. Yeah. Yeah. And from the perspective of some of these other teams, I mean, uh, you know, the Clippers versus the Thunder could be a very interesting first-round matchup because of the fact that these teams made a blockbuster trade leading into the season. So Paul George would be facing his former team of last year, this time with the Clippers jersey on. But then, more importantly, I think Chris Paul and Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Danilo Gallinari are all now wearing Thunder jerseys, and I think they would relish the opportunity to play the Clippers in the first round and get a little bit of payback. Oh, For yeah. sure, yeah. So that And Shea Gilgis-Alexander is a prospect that's on many people's radars oh, yeah. as well, and yeah. he's the leading scorer on that team. So that has potentially interesting hobby implications i haven't looked at his market very closely but the general principle that the more exposure you get to a player with the narrower field of focus means that they're going to get more hobby attention and potentially you know the market will trend up at least for a limited period of time on a player like that but of course our area of particular interest is the mavericks who are projected to fall within the five to six seed range but they're only projected to be one game better than the seven seed and, you know, you lose a couple of games you're supposed to win over this stretch yeah. and you can easily be in the seventh seed. And that's going to depend greatly on how the two through four seeds sort themselves because the Rockets have been red hot lately, but then they lost to the Knicks tonight, which made Mavericks fans everywhere feel a lot better because we, we lost twice. Two really bad losses <laughs> to the Knicks. Um, I really don't want to play the Nuggets first, though. Well, I will say that. You know, it's it, the Mavericks are going to play one of these teams in the first round, the Clippers, the Rockets, or the Nuggets. And the Clippers and the Rockets don't really have any, any interesting prospects on them, but the James Harden card market will be interesting to watch if the Rockets continue playing this hot, and if maybe they sweep the first round. His cards could be something 
you know, it, this might be his year. This might be his, his and Westbrook's year. Yeah. They've been playing absolutely phenomenally lately as Westbrook has taken an increased role, as the lane has cleared now that they got the center out of the way and they're playing micro ball. Westbrook has been very good. Uh, but the Nuggets have Michael Porter Jr., who's, mm-hmm. you know, legitimate prospect status in the hobby and who sees important minutes and important games for the Nuggets. And nobody really seems to be overly focused on collecting Jokic, but the guy just put up the best player efficiency rating in the league for the month of February. It wasn't even close. It was like 35. Right. He is playing out of his mind right now. The Nuggets are going to be a tough out for anybody. So the Mavericks are going to have to face up against one of those three teams, and uh, it's going to be a tough first-round matchup for them, uh, no matter which way that goes. But I see a potential for upset against especially the Nuggets and the Rockets from the Mavericks' uh, point of view. All right, let's move on to the next segment here. Rookie card boom. So Gary V, who's recently become a very important fixture in the hobby, tweeted about two hours ago, quote, it's hard to buy cards, dot, dot, dot. Ready for the national show in July, slash, eBay is too hot. Okay. Wait. Okay. One last context setting here. <laughs> this tweet from Gary V. this comes in the context of him having tweeted about cards nonstop for the last 48 hours. And uh, Gary V's attention on cards has, has been at a high level really since like at least the national that he attended last year. Um, but it's ramped up even more lately. And one of the other channels on the bench clear network, Pat geek on his Twitter account, shared a Gary V video, the weekly V number zero zero six. And starting at the five forty five timestamp on that video, you can find a segment that includes Gary V explaining the LeBron 2003-04 Chrome PSA 10 surge to surge Ibaka. And it was fascinating to see him try to convince an NBA player to buy another NBA player's cards from the yeah. as an investment opportunity. So, okay. Having set the stage. Yes. First of all, we're recording on Monday, so we'll give you some context about Monday, when this March is happening. 2nd. Yes, Monday, March 2nd. But if Gary V thinks that eBay is too hot now, what does he think Nationals going to be like in person in July? And it he seems, knows that because he was there at the last national. He yeah, knows what the prices are like at these The things. prices are more expensive in person. So maybe what Gary Vee's really saying is he spent all his money on <laughs> eBay. And he is he needs he's, he's coming up with a cover to save face for why he's yeah. not buying anymore. Or you know, he's just going to sell everything he bought at national. He's trying to get a bunch of people to go to national that wouldn't oh, normally sure. go to national. For sure. Uh, definitely. He wants to see... A high turnout at national. And someone told me that last year he was charging like twenty bucks above comps on all of his cards, <laughs> and then like you paid twenty bucks to get a picture. That's how him. it works at national. Yeah. Oh right. So it was an old. It was like know, yeah, like yeah. if you buy a card for me, I'll take a picture with you. But you're paying twenty dollars over, so you're buying a card for normal price, but you're well, paying you know twenty dollars for. Picture. Somebody actually told me when we were at um, Trade Fest last Saturday night that you were charging people $50 to take a picture with you. <laughs> Brian, why would you do that? Well, so. I gotta make money somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so earlier today, as I was looking at Gary, twe- uh, as I was <laughs> Gary, at Gary tweets, tweets, so I was looking at Gary V's tweets, 
somebody replied to one of his many hobby related tweets and he sent a screenshot and the tweet was, he, it says something like, Hey Gary V, what are you buying right now? And then he showed, here's what I'm buying. And it had two 2018, 19 prism Trey young PSA 10 base cards listed in his purchased window in his eBay app at $200. So he bought two at $200 and then he had one 2018-19 Prism Mosaic red Trey Young PSA 10 in there that he had bought for $199. So he was basically like saying, "Oh, you know, Gary V here, look, and all the Gary V's followers, here's what I'm buying, you know. Check this out." Yeah. And that uh intrigued me. So I went ahead and looked at the Trey Young Prism Base rookie card PSA 10 population, which is 3,950. And I looked at the market trajectory for this card narrowed to auctions only. The first week of February, this card was selling for $100. The second week of February, $110. The third and the fourth weeks of February, between $120 and $150. On February 28th, it was selling for around $175 to $200. And then today and yesterday, it's been selling for between $200 and $220. That card doubled in value in a month. And meanwhile, the Hawks are projected in basketball references probability report to finish 27 and 55 uh just right outside the playoffs there they just got blown out by the grizzlies tonight <laughs> 127 to 88 however they're five and five in their last 10 games and now that they're healthy so to speak and uh, i mean they're still waiting to integrate capella into their team to see how he fits but collins is back quarters back young is back you know, five and five is five hundred basketball. It's the same record the Mavs have in their last ten games. Now Trey Young's season averages, he's averaging thirty points, nine assists, and four rebounds in thirty-five minutes per game. And he has a player efficiency rating of twenty-four point five, which is good for eleventh in the league. In his last ten games, he's been playing thirty-eight minutes per game. He's been averaging thirty-two points, eleven assists, and three rebounds. But in the bigger picture, it does not seem like anything substantial has changed with the Hawks. It doesn't seem like their outlook over the period of the last 30 days, suddenly got twice as optimistic. Right. So, in other words, there does not appear to be any NBA on-court factors, or in other words, there doesn't appear to be any factors that are external to the hobby that are influencing his pricing. It, it must be the case that there are internal hobby factors that are affecting his pricing. And just as a quick aside, it's important to note that while we are interweaving analysis of real-world performance and on-court performance and player performance and team performance with discussion about the hobby and the market and cards and collecting, that those two are separate domains and that something really interesting and exciting and important can happen in the league that doesn't translate to enthusiasm in the hobby for a number of reasons. And we can see, as we refer to somebody like Mahomes's rookie card, losing half of its value immediately after Mahomes wins the Super Bowl. So you can have these inverse correlations between success right. and hobby value that speaks to one of the you know differences between the market and the hobby and on-court performance. And then you can also have factors that are unique to the hobby that have nothing to do with the league itself that will cause, you know, rises in value, like what we're seeing with Trey Young that cannot be directly correlated to anything that 
anything of equal enthusiasm or optimism that happened with respect to the league. So just a quick caveat on that is like sort of a, a mental framework to keep in mind is that the one doesn't necessarily imply the other with respect to real world performance and market values. So the Trey Young surge in rookie card value is emblematic of a general surge that we're seeing across the board. So the Tim Duncan 1997-98 Chrome PSA 10 rookie card, it has a population of 2,280, is now selling for over $400 at auction, and we need to wait and see what these auctions end at. These cards are still at auction. They're over $400. These were under $200 roughly two months ago. And again, that's another instance where clearly a retired player, there's no on-court performance right. here to right. um, point to as the factor that's influencing a doubling in the value of his rookie cards. Over well, the past I thought I saw like on Twitter though, like he had some crazy just you know backyard basketball video, <laughs> just school and just dunking on just someone, dunking on his son, dunking, just dunking, you know, yeah, just just uh, just <laughs> Duncan, Duncan. LeBron James, 2003-2004, Chrome PSA 10 rookie card has a population of 1,962. It sold for $7,600 yesterday. And then today, a few auctions ended for $7,7100. Copies of that card were selling below $2,000 two months ago. And in fact, this was the particular card that Gary Vee was telling Serge Ibaka about. And that Gary Vee in a separate video said that he acquired over 50 copies of it. Right, right. And he said he made, like, how much money on it? Like 200K or something like yeah, that? Yeah, he said he he made this video at the time when this card was trading at $4,000. Yeah. And he had bought them, he said, at $1,000, and he had acquired 50. So $3,000 profit times 50 cards is, you know, a on the paper profit of $150,000. Yeah, I was just going to say, he didn't actually make that money That's though right. because he hasn't he sold hasn't his sold cards. Them. And yeah. if he put 50 cards on the, on eBay, you would not fetch $7,000 for each of them because the market would say, no thanks or 50 cards out there. That's right. Not paying high prices. Very important to so, draw that distinction yes. between paper money versus actual profits. Yeah. Then that kind of generates an interesting Paper question. money being like, money you've calculated right not like our u.s dollars of paper money exactly i don't know is there a better term for just books money on the books but it hasn't actualized yet it's just in your spreadsheet like oh i have 50 of this i would say like it's it's virtual money because you haven't actually you're playing with it it's like monopoly money well there's something real about it in the sense that there are comps you know suggesting that at least for now if a card were to hit the market, there's some reason to expect you would get in the ballpark of that value, potentially. But not for all 50 well, of them. No, definitely not. And so that generates an interesting question. If you were him and you had 50 and you wanted to start getting rid of them now that they're $7,000 a piece, how would you do it? And like, obviously, slowly, you wouldn't want to do it on eBay. In person. eBay is like this, exactly. Because eBay card is shows. just like uh, this card show that we all go to every day and that creates a data log of all the transactions that we can all look at. And, you know, we can look at the 90 day sales volume of cards and we can see how frequently they're selling. And that creates an important perception with respect to the scarcity or the lack of scarcity of a card. But 
if you had 50 copies of this card and you had associates or affiliates in various cities and states across the country who, you know, all these localities have shows. You know, we have shows in Southern California. There's, there's shows everywhere. And Multiple Nashville shows. just had a show this past weekend. Yeah, they happen all across the country all the time. So, you know, you, you disperse these cards to all these different areas and just say, hey, you know, you sell two at your show. Yeah. And if these are selling for $7,000 on eBay, well, you got to take into consideration, you know, eBay's seller fees and stuff. So like maybe you let these go for 6500 Right. And then like if you show up to a card show where everything's overpriced and you see LeBron James 2003-04 Chrome going for, you know, $500 less than the last comp, it seems like a pretty good deal. It's a pretty good way to sell those yep. from the perspective of the seller. You're actually netting the same thing you would sell as if you sold on eBay. But most importantly, the perception of how many of these are selling and how many are on the market is completely obscured because these are going to be cash deals or PayPal on-site deals that never get recorded in the visible marketplace of sports. Right. They're private deals. And you could even, you know, try to do a few through like Facebook and Instagram, but even that stuff's very visible. You know, when somebody posts like their cards for sale on their Instagram news feed or uh, they post it on in the Facebook groups. Like lots of people see that, and if they see too much of that, it really creates the impression that these cards are being sold off. What if you like had fifty cards and you post one of them and you say DM with your best offer, and then you just <laughs> accept fifty different best offers and send them out? The one issue potentially with that would be everybody wants the exact card that they see pictured which is going to correspond to a particular serial number on the slab. You blur it out. Well. <laughs> We're getting know. into ethical issues now. and I mean, this all of this is ethically fraught. Right. Um, because the idea that you can corner a market by choking off the supply, allow that deprived market to experience a commensurate price increase with the reduced supply, and then begin slowly selling off the item at that increased price, but you know, doing it in a way that doesn't get recorded on the same marketplace that's setting the comps is potentially creating a misleading market characterization of what the market is for that card. But such is the dynamic of our market. Another way is you could reach out to different card shops that are online and DM them with a picture of the exact card and offer it for 6,000 shops will bite because they can sell it in shop for at least seven and they can turn a quick profit. Yeah, and the other side of the coin from the perspective I just presented is that like what you're saying here. Everyone in the hobby is aware that eBay is not the only marketplace, mm -hmm. that there are deals happening all the time at shops and at shows, and that something like this could potentially happen, and that people should always tread carefully. And when you have a card that has a population of almost 2,000 that has tripled in value over two months, be alert and, and really look carefully at what's going on in this market. Uh, before you decide that, you know, this is a card that you want to get involved in. Yeah. I mean, I think that this card is deemed LeBron's rookie card. So, like, regardless of the way it presents itself or any, like, you know, kind of general characteristics about the card, like, it is the rookie card, so it's going to hold that premium with him. You think of, like, the Jordan comparison to, like, what a rookie card is, and it's the Fleer 86, right? So, like, that card as a PSA 10, 
obviously the pop is like completely different. 312. Um, right. Like 312 Jordan 86 player PSA 10s. Right. But it's, <laughs> but they go for like what, you know, 30 grand. So 40, 40 now. Yeah. So the, so people see that and they're like, okay, well maybe like this LeBron, like you, you just kind of want that rookie card. So people, I think, are chasing that aspect of the things. Um, but like you said, like it's a high pop card, so there's problems with that. But what it made me think about, too, is the refractor, uh, the Topps Chrome refractor. And do you have an, any idea what those are selling for now? I believe the last PSA 10 sold for eighteen grand. Yeah, just about, yeah. seventeen two five. so... And that I was mean, a little while ago, right? Like a week it was or like two fifteen ago. days 15 ago. Fifteen days ago. So like that was a while ago, and then like a month before, they're like less than a month before that, it was like going for like thirteen five. So it's like all of those have been going up pretty high. They have, and one of the things that's really interesting about the current price of the O three O four LeBron Chrome is that that card, when it was in the two thousand dollar to one thousand dollar range, felt to me like okay, this card is securely within the domain of that middle range collector base or investor base of people who are comfortable spending a thousand two thousand dollars on a card i mean we we looked at it and compared it to to luca right for like his cards like in like base cards and things like that well now the card has leapfrogged everything in between values of you know a thousand dollars and seven thousand dollars and it's suddenly a high-end card yeah at seven thousand dollars so it's really fascinating to me that a card can leap into becoming a high-end card like that over a period of two months. The thought that occurred to me was like, well, it's probably a slightly different class of of buyer that acquires the refractor, which is a much higher-end item, as compared to the Chrome card. Like the Chrome card is for the mid-range collector and the refractor is for the high-end guy. Right. But Maybe I need to recalibrate the cutoffs that I separate mid range from high end at because this car's trading at, you know, seven grand. That implies that the refractor is going to be going up very likely. When we were first looking at this card, I think, and we looked at the refractor, it was around like that price of like seven thousand or like ten thousand for the refractor. So it's crazy to think that you could have gotten a refractor way back and for the same price that now you're paying for just a chrome. So when the LeBron reached the $6,000 mark on comps, which was just like a few days ago, yeah, I calculated the market cap for the LeBron 2003-2004 Topps Chrome PSA 10 at the population, like we said, of 1,962. Yeah. And at that time, it was around $11.4 million. And then I compared it to the Michael Jordan 8687 Fleer PSA 10 Pop 312, which sells at 40000 And right. that market cap was at about $12.4 million. And the magic number for the LeBron to match the Michael Jordan market cap was $6,300. If, if the LeBron PSA 10 started trading at $6,300, right. its market cap would then equal the Michael Jordan 8687 Fleer PSA 10 market cap. Well, it's $7,000. It's now exceeded it. Right. Which tells me that Jordans are due for a bump. Especially, I know we've mentioned it briefly with the documentary coming up in June. Even if LeBron wins his fourth title this year, Jordans will bump, like leapfrog back over him come post-playoffs. Maybe. And now there's... The narrowly focusing on the PSA 10 market cap, it requires some caveats because 
the Michael Jordan overall population of the 86 Fleer is like 15,000 with PSA. Right. So like there's a lot of nines and eights and sevens. It also takes some of the value. So like if you looked at the total market cap for that card as a whole, it's still very likely it's dwarfing the Chrome PSA 10. But there's also reason to focus on only the PSA 10 because that really is becoming ever more increasingly the placeholder for the investment oriented strategic buyers yeah so let's look at two more rookies that have surged over the last very you know recent period of time we have the Giannis 2013-14 prison psa 10 which has a population of 2433 a copy of that sold for 1925 dollars today copies of that card were selling for 850 to 900 dollars a month ago and then you have the Luca 2018-19 Prison PSA 10, which has a population of drum roll, eight thousand seven hundred and sixty-four, selling for between three hundred eighty and four hundred dollars tonight. There were like half dozen auctions that sold within that range tonight, and copies of that were selling for between two hundred twenty-five and two hundred fifty dollars a month ago. So Tim Duncan, LeBron James, Giannis, Luca, Trey, all these guys are seeing a big bump in the value of their key rookie cards. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting to note that they're all uh, have like the Chrome finish to them. Yes, they do. Um, That's definitely part of this. So like in that video, the Gary, the weekly V episode 06, if you start at 545, you'll hear one of Gary's associates giving a, an introduction before it actually cuts to Gary explaining to Serge Ibaka about the LeBron rookie card market. And one of the things that he points out is how to search eBay to sort of get a feel for the market for these cards. Yeah. And his insight was, well, just put Prism PSA 10 and search sold and completed. So it got me thinking, and we'll talk about this in depth in just a minute here, but it got me thinking about how sort of complex – navigating the hobby marketplace can be if you don't know where to start yeah and so if like you're just going on ebay and searching prison psa 10 put yourself in the shoes of that person who doesn't understand that like last year there was more than 20 sets of cards that came out right and there's dozens upon dozens of rookie cards and then you know throw in all the different parallels and you know you're talking hundreds of different variations of rookie cards of players and here there's a hyper focus on just like that one chrome finish card. Yep. Not even the silver, the refractor, although those have their own markets. Right. Um, that I had, that we haven't even looked at for the purposes of here. But, you know, the point that you're calling attention to is like, hey, these base chrome finish cards are commanding a lot of attention. Yeah. I think that's one of the factors is that that's like a, a necessity for people who don't know where else to start that they just kind of, Start with what's familiar and yeah, what's kind of established is yeah the the kind of card or whatever. I mean, exactly. I think that's people can relate it to the you know LeBron and like that's where they relate they're relating these kind of rookie cards for these new modern players to. So we want to look at explanations for why this surge is happening, and I am going to offer three. The first explanation is something we've already alluded to, which is that there's an influx of newcomers into the hobby who are primarily investors. 
right now it kind of makes sense to me to use the following model to look at the two different types of buyers who are in the marketplace for cards. You can use the collector paradigm or you can use the investor paradigm. The collector paradigm is based on the premise that value is derived from the inherent collectability of a card. The intellectual pleasure that the collector receives from participating in the hobby comes from the act of collecting. And so the key factors in setting the market for cards from the perspective of the collector paradigm are rarity, scarcity, condition, aesthetic appeal, historical importance, and the likability of the player. And I say likability as opposed to achievement because you see players like Penny Hardaway doing very well among collectors, yeah. even though you know their career was sort of cut short due to injuries and a lot of unfulfilled potential. Um, not to say that he's not uh, that he wasn't a phenomenal player, but that the likability factor and the nostalgia factor seems to be an important part of his market. Now, the investor paradigm comes from the perspective that value is derived from the expectation of future value. And the intellectual pleasure that the investor derives from participating in the hobby is the ability to make money. And the key factors in setting the market for the investor are things like, what is the consensus key cards? Um, they, they like to focus narrowly on the cards that people sort of mutually agree are the ones that will become the placeholders of value. Other key factors for the investor paradigm and setting the market value are, you know, PSA 10. The PSA 10 definitely gets a huge premium for these people. Transaction volume, liquidity, the ability to buy and sell these cards quickly and to cash in quickly is important. And as opposed to the likability of the player in the collector paradigm being an important factor, the potential of the player whether it's to increase their career achievements or it's to improve upon their legacy somehow. Uh, that is what helps set the market for the investor paradigm. And so that definition is kind of nuanced. Uh, the potential of the player either to add career achievements, whether that's someone like Jason Tatum this year potentially being able to contend for a title, whether it's someone like Giannis getting his first title, whether it's someone like LeBron adding his fourth um, those are all adding to a player's uh, cabinet of achievements. Or um, I also included improve upon their legacy. So this is you know a documentary about Michael Jordan coming out and it documenting his final season and it casting a new light and a renewed focus and a renewed interest in the player. It's kind of could be understood as enhancing or improving his legacy. And also players' legacies can improve just by comparison to contemporary players. And I think that happens with Michael Jordan a lot when people kind of look back and they see that not only are his achievements and his dominance of the league unlikely to be replicated by any of the current players combined with like the style of play and the statistical dominance that he had, but also his just aura as a mythical icon is not likely to be replicated either. Now, most people participate in the hobby with some level of the collector paradigm and the investor paradigm. You know, maybe some people lean towards being a collector, but they also adopt the investor paradigm at times and sometimes vice versa. And there's also some people who stick exclusively to one of the two paradigms. But the point here is that the influx of investor-leaning market participants 
has placed that emphasis on the PSA 10 grades of the high pop and iconic rookie cards, which is, Brian, speaking to your observation. An interesting uh, dimension to this is that there's new platforms popping up uh, in the hobby that are attempting to become sort of the focal point of where all of this investor-oriented transacting can occur. And these platforms are premised on the assumption that having tangible possession of the card itself just doesn't matter. That what really matters is being able to speculate and trade on the potential of a player and the PSA 10 main focal point rookie card is just the placeholder of that value. Right. And so these marketplaces, these platforms are trying to come into the market and become the dominant place where you can send PSA 10 graded copies of the cards to sit in a vault. Right. And you never have them in your possession. I mean, you could recall them if you wanted to, but it doesn't seem like the investor would want to. They just sit in this vault and then you just day trade them as if they're stocks. So if Giannis is doing really, really well and his card is selling high on eBay, then, you know, you can go to this other platform and, you know, you can make it available for sale there and somebody might buy it from you and then, it moves from your digital account to theirs. And right. ideally, I think these platforms would like for themselves to become the marketplace right. and just totally supplant eBay as the basis for where these transactions can occur. And of course, the, these platforms are hoping to come in and sort of you know, become, for a, a lack of a better metaphor, the casino. And their profit comes from taking the rake of each transaction or each gamble. Right, And so... They just want to provide this service that makes these transactions more efficient, quicker. You don't have to deal right. with the shipping and everything Well, that's else. the thing. is like you're making the market extremely efficient like as soon as things happen in real time, which is like cards have – it has that ability in the sense like eBay. Like you can notice like a game happens and then boom, like a bunch of cards start like, you know, selling. But – other than that, like you don't have that instant uh, feedback like uh, this kind of platform would provide. That's right. And efficiency is going to cut into the profit margin on the cards as yeah. transactions become instantaneous and like the card suddenly and instantly becomes yours and you're trading just based on the speculation of what could potentially happen with this player. And there's this sort of communal agreement that hey we're all just going to kind of agree that these cards are going to be placeholders of value you know it's kind of like everybody just decides like okay we're all gonna each of us is going to put ten thousand dollars into a pot and then we're all going to try and divide it up according to who can make the better prediction right and so the cards become like a currency almost it's sort of everybody just agrees is going to be placeholder of value and we're all going to just play by this rule and by the system of rules. And so if my predictions are better than yours, then more of the value that's in the pot's going to accrue to me. This is a totally different model than the collector model. Right. Where collectors, the value and the market for those cards the collectors go after, which often overlaps. I mean, it, this isn't to say that collectors can't also desire base rookie card PSA 10s because they do. They absolutely oh, yeah. do. But I mean, they there's also, a reason why that card is the main card to it, that degree, too, right? Absolutely. But the collector derives the value from putting a PC together, from sharing it with other people, from just, just gazing and looking at the card, from feeling a connection to the player. These 
are the fundamentals upon which the market value for items that collectors chase are premised upon. Very different fundamentals than the fundamentals for somebody who just wants to day trade based on the value of a particular player and that yeah. trading cards are just the placeholder for that. Yeah, and especially with, I mean, collectors, they're focused more on, like, not just one specific card of one player, like their rookie card only, like their rookie base. Like, they're focused on way more, like, in-depth levels of cards between different products, so... And there's a lot of intellectual pleasure in that process. Right, right. And then, you and know, there, Well, there's more, too, and it's like... it's it doesn't, like what this podcast is. Yeah, right. I mean, well, it gets to the point of, like, where you get to, like, really low pop cards, like, that are just, ser- like, serial cards, like, that are just out of 10. Like, it, there's not always, like, an efficient marketplace for, like, what that should sell for. So, like, then you kind of use your investor knowledge or your collecting knowledge and kind of can make whatever your prediction is for that value of that card is and i think that to me is a more of a challenge and something that's you're going to get more out of it in the long run than like just going off of like a base card and there is something really interesting though that like the origin of the market for base rookie cards is predicated on the fundamentals of collectors for the most part because yeah. there is this demand for these cards that emanates from people who just really enjoy having them in their collections. They like looking at them. They like taking pictures of them. They like sharing them with people. They like trading them. Yeah. They're the tangible dimension. These cards provides value, but then the investor uh, paradigm piles on top of that. And on top of that, it builds another layer of value that's predicated on totally different fundamentals. Yeah. And so one of the things I think that means is that, the floor value on all these cards, these rookie base, you know, PSA 10 chrome finish cards is going to be the value that collectors will pay up to in order to have this card in their collection. Everything over and above that is predicated on fundamentals that we have not really seen, I don't think, extensively tested in the marketplace for collectibles. Yeah, I think you're you're almost seeing a transition in cards from being just like a collector kind of thing to more of that investment like solidified kind of financial gain where I think both can exist, but how does that dynamic play out? That's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, it is. And there is still an investment dimension to the collecting of rare items. It's definitely there, but the fundamentals that make value movements occur in that context are predicated on the proclivities of collectors. Right. And that's just a very different um, mindset from the investor paradigm. And so that's one of the reasons why, and maybe I'm doing this to my own detriment, but I'm kind of, well, not even kind of. I, I, it's been like months since we bought any new cards. And, you know, we bought that, that, uh, box of Prism Cellos. But, you know, other than that, I've just kind of been sitting back. Cards that I like to focus on are definitely cards that I approach from the collector paradigm. Yeah. I like the rarity. I like and understand and appreciate how important aesthetics are to cards. You know, that's why, Every time uh, the arena 
um, couple makes a new post. Arena design. Yeah. On Instagram, we just go nuts. Their, totally. Their Fleer Metal uh, sign was just sick, the post they did today. Yeah, they made an incredible post today where it was like this. Well, let's uh, take a moment. Yeah. A couple days ago, they posted about scoring kings, and they gave a shout-out to House of Jordan they for did. talking about it in the podcast. You thought about retiring right then and there from the podcast. I thought I won. Like, I mean, that's I, pretty I, cool. I was like, I won the hobby podcast yeah. life. Like, <laughs> Arena Design just talked about our podcast and us talking about their card in our podcast. And then I wrote, like, thanks for the shout-out, and they responded directly to me. And then I totally like freaked out. Like I literally high pitched screamed like when I read <laughs> that, like aloud, like probably scared my neighbors. And I even said like to their post, like I'm fangirling hard right now because <laughs> they knew my name. What did they post today? <laughs> did you see what they posted today? You didn't see oh, this? Wow. Oh, I wasn't on Instagram oh, today. Love it. All right. Well, I'll just very work, briefly. Work was kind of crazy. And then you told me that I had to prepare for today for tonight's recording. So I'm going now. Well, I'm look, sorry. I'll it f- doesn't mean I don't love you, Arena Design. Oh, I see you put the That's a Cool Card sticker on your yeah. Uh, phone. Yeah. Uh, well, you guys were talking just now and I was dazing out i put a that's a cool well, card. Look, let me just very briefly okay, yeah. tease this post they had this they made a physical replica of the metal universe logo oh my god it looks awesome and they used it because it helps them to actually create the logo the this the sketch of the logo that ultimately appeared on the cards so, but um just read that post because i couldn't do it justice i'm not a brilliant artist and they are arena design underscore com This logo was adapted from a logo originally used on a Marvel Entertainment product. We wanted to create a more realistic metal look to the logo. The best way to achieve that was to actually have it cast out of metal and nickel-plated. The cards in the photo give you an idea of the size of the final casting. It's about 12 inches wide, 1 inch thick, solid metal, and weighs over 10 pounds. We used it in on advertising, marketing materials, and packaging, as well as the cards. A lot of effort went into this small detail that you may never have noticed. BT dubs. I totally noticed. I know you did. <laughs> Anytime I talk about a card, I always reference the logo, especially from 90s cards. Yeah. Yeah. I always talk about where the logo is or what it is. And Arena Design, I just want you to know, I noticed, I appreciate, and I love this post. How did I miss it today? I'm sorry, I wasn't on Instagram. And so it was really interesting because I had some people I was talking with in private messages, and you can look at some of the comments, and people are like, can I buy this? Is this for sale? Like, please. Because stuff like that is, A, why I love 90s cards so much, is because of the people who made them. And they did such a great job. And B, um, because there's something... Uh, there's such a so many different elements of collectability and history to that era of cards now, and that is one symbolic uh, someone, manifestation. Just of that. right off the bat, let me just say, someone wrote, "If there is a museum for cardboard, this would this should be in there with no doubt." Exactly. Like that's how I feel about everything. Yeah, that's, that they've that's, done. A, that's a totally epic piece, and there's only one of those. Right. I mean, if that went to an open auction, um, oh man, I have I no could, idea what that would sell for. It would be a yeah. pretty penny. Yeah. yeah, and that's based on collector fundamentals, right? Right. And, right. You know, there's not people who are seeking to buy that so they can send it to a vault so that they can day trade it. Right. There's people who want to display that piece in their home 
and show it off to people and take it to the national and say, I have the only one of these. The people who designed 9798 Metal Universe used this and created this themselves and just tell the whole story behind it and everything else. I mean, yep. that's one of the things about cards, too. That almost gets lost when I focus when I hyper focus on Michael Jordan and Luka Doncic is that cards of different players can be used as conversation pieces to tell the stories of those players, and that's one of the really great communal and connections and uh, social dimensions to collecting. That's fascinating is when somebody has an array of a lot of different cards. So, like for example, I saw '90s Wax at the last trade night. And he had a two-row box of, like, 90s classics. Just he had the rave parallels. He had credentials parallels. He had rubies. He had everything in there. And I went through the cards. And I went through other sets, like, authentic kicks that I had never seen before because yeah. Jordan's not in it, so it, like, right. doesn't exist to me. Right. And he was just telling me stories behind all these cards and pointing out different intricacies to these cards, different design aspects to these cards, why different players are cool and exciting from these sets. I mean, that's fun, man. That's a great way to spend a Saturday night to me, doing stuff like that. So, like, that's another collector fundamental, I think, that props up that market. So, all right. That was the first explanation of why this base rookie card surge is happening is the influx of newcomers who are primarily looking at things from the investor paradigm. The second of the three explanations I want to put forth is using an analytical lens that I developed that segments players into two types, value-setting players versus derivative players. Value-setting players are players who set the baseline pricing upon which other players' values are based. And derivative players are players whose value is derived from a comparison to a value-setting player. So I'll give two examples, one in the context of players themselves and one in the context of players as they're embodied by cards. First example, Luca in general has become a player who's used as a baseline for setting the value of other players, like Trey, who's often described as cheap due to the ratio of his cards' values to Luca cards' values. Zion, his values seem to be in some sense related to Luca values because typically across the board, his values are anywhere from 10 to 25% higher than Luca's. And LeBron, one of the great examples of how Luca is the value-setting player for LeBron is in the RPA market, where I constantly see people discussing what the value of a LeBron RPA should be, and that logic is predicated on the idea, on a thought process that kind of says, well, the Luca RPA is worth X, so the LeBron RPA should be worth 10X, or whatever that multiplier happens to be. And then LeBron is also a value-setter. So a great example of that is like the 2018-19 Optic Hollow. That LeBron Optic Hollow in a PSA 10 grade got up to $800, and we talked about that back when it was happening many episodes ago. And then it was used as a baseline for the value that ultimately Luca and some of the other key players in that 2018-19 Optic Hollow set would eventually become. Now, the value-setting players like Luca and LeBron have done extremely well this season, whether it's in terms of encore performance or their card markets. And that has compelled other markets that are the derivative markets of those value-setting players to react. So one example I'll give is National Treasures. So the Luca 2018-19 National Treasures RPA was about eight to $10,000 at release. Cases were around four to $5,000 at that time. And 
the price of that card stayed in this range throughout the entire offseason. It didn't go up until the end of November when it went to about 20 to 30K. And now it's about 40 to 50K in raw condition. And the last case to sell was $11,750 on January 7th. This valuation is now being used to set the price for the 2019-20 National Treasures cases, which are expected to sell, surprise, surprise, about 10 to 20% more in the twelve dollars to $15,000 range per case, which also implies that that Zion RPA is going to be 50, 60K. Yeah. So, but that's an example of how but then that's gonna value have, setting works. They'll have a feedback loop to the 2018 product, and that's going to surge it up even more too, you know? True. Now, value setting and derivative players, these aren't fixed categories. So like a player could be, for a period of time, a value setter, and then they could become a derivative player. And the players can move in and out of these classifications, or they can, you know, obviously they can show characteristics of both. I think the hallmark of a value setting player is a player that unexpectedly sustains a market value that people were not anticipating. It's very... If somebody who like overperforms or has this unexpected performance that's sustained, whether it's, you know, we're talking on court or we're talking in the hobby with respect to market values, they become like a value setter that everything else kind of orbits around. And so I ask, I pose this question to you and then, and I, I kind of have an answer, I think as well, which market is more stable or maybe the better way to just ask it is, from the perspective of the financial security of cards, which market is more stable or more secure? Is it the value setting player or is it the derivative player? I mean, I would say it's the value setting player. Those players are the ones that are actually getting those prices in general because of their performance. So if you're just comparing their cards to other players, um, you're kind of waiting on somebody else's performance to affect your card to a certain degree. So it's it's kind of a weird feedback kind of in that sense, I would say. It is, but I feel like uh, the value-setting player carries the load, and then the derivative players just benefit from it Yeah, uh, without actually having to do anything substantive on their own. Sure. Now, that's not a totally fair statement because even to justify status as a derivative player, you need to have some sort of evidence that justifies that you should even be considered a derivative of the value-setting player. Right. But still, like the derivative players, I mean, if if the market for a derivative player gets set based on a value-setting player and then the value-setting player fades, that doesn't necessarily imply that the derivative player is going to fade too. Right. Sometimes their market just sticks. Right. Like I think that's kind of what happened with the 2003-2004 LeBron Chrome PSA 10 rookie. I think when the Kobe 96-97 PSA 10 rookie got up to six to $8,000, that was the value-setting mechanism that gave sort of permission right. to the LeBron to go up to that six to $8,000 range. Right. Then when the Kobe went back down to 3000 the LeBron stayed up and it's even going up higher right now. Right. It could also be said that like now the LeBron James is now a value setting card for the rest of the like prism Chrome, like rookie, you know? So that's interesting how that works. You go from a derivative to a value setter like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. My third um, and final explanation 
for this surge that we're seeing in prices is quite simply comps, comparables, and the logic of comps and how important they are to the sports card market. So, Brian, if you had to explain to a newcomer to the hobby what comps are and why they're important and how they work, how would you make that explanation? I would say that it's essentially just a way to test the market value of a certain uh, card or item, you know. Uh, You're just seeing, okay, what did it sell for recently, you know, and then you have to kind of extrapolate based upon the amount of sales, the time of the sales, like in reference to when you're buying it or if you're selling it, whatever you're, you know, trying to figure out what the comp actually is. It is complicated to explain comps. (laughs) <laughs> well, it gets more complex with, like we were saying before, like the serial cards. Like oh, it's yeah. not as direct. It's not even just like trying to use eBay. I mean, I I shudder at the thought of sitting down and trying to explain to somebody how all this works. Yeah, because you just need. It's not intuitive. First of all, you would think with the way like a marketplace works, like the store, like a Walmart. You walk in, the price, the things are priced as the market price of those things. But you go on to eBay. And the vast majority of stuff is substantially overpriced. So yeah, you need to go look at sold and completed listings. And then that's where the comp comes into play as sort of an indicator of market value. But even within that, you have to be able to distinguish between the different comps. You have to understand that eBay does not tell you when a best offer was accepted what the value was. And there's also private offers that happen on eBay that you don't get to see what they are. There are ways to check best offer data, but you have to go to a website like sportscards.com and know how to use that. Yeah. And so that gets And there can also just be variations in the price like that can, you know, you see like the fluctuation, you're like, "Well, what is the actual comp price, you know?" Exactly. So you can see a lot of data that might not make sense to you. And then eBay very easily could make available to the public if a card actually gets paid for or not because everything that's in its sold and completed listings are cards that ended at auction or that had an offer accepted or that the buy now button was clicked on it but we don't know in any of those instances whether the person who clicked buy it now or who won the auction or who made the offer actually paid for it so you have this list of sold and completed items And if you really know how to pay attention, you can look and see if items get relisted. And if you kind of know how the practices and policies of the different auction houses work, you know that those data sets are enhanced by the fact that the bigger auction houses will relist items. They will not send them back to the consigner if they don't get paid for. So that's one way you can figure out if something got paid or not, is to look for the relist in the next round of auctions. But it's very opaque, yeah. and it's difficult to navigate that information. And eBay does not make it available to us whether something got paid or not. So that's an issue. But it's it's not an issue that we should get hysterical about either. We were at trade night on Saturday night, and people were looking at comps on eBay, and they were basing their deals on that, and they were trading cards based on those valuations, or they were breaking out rubber banded cash wads and paying for things based on those. So, well, that's the interesting thing, right? I mean, you're having like this online marketplace set the price 
for yeah. in-person transactions that aren't recorded in the marketplace. True. True. Uh, there Deals happen. <laughs> we, Christina and I, we've been a part of deals that have happened where we paid way over the most recent comp that had been recorded on eBay. The, you know, the private deals can work in that direction too. Right. Um, where there's a, a comp that recently happened, but it wasn't recorded in an online marketplace. And there's a lot of incentives pushing people off of the online marketplaces. But you have to sort of look at the inherent logic of comps. And you know why is it that if one person or three people or five people were willing to pay X dollars for a card, that then you should be willing to pay it too. But it, it becomes a... We've, we've used the phrase feedback loop several times. Like yeah. I think that kind of describes this too. There, there's with cards in particular, there's an anxiety and an urgency to get a card that is constrained by not wanting to look like a fool, not wanting to overpay for something, wanting to be very disciplined and frugal and make proper purchases. Yeah. But once you understand and see that one other person was willing to pay this much, it sort of gives you permission to pay that much or something close to it. And then you also understand that other people are thinking the same way that you are. Yep. And so then it becomes sort of a race to be the first next person right. to get at that price because you're anticipating that other people are thinking along that dimension as well. So this is the psychology of comps and comparables and why this as a mechanism works and why you know people are, are willing to accept market values based on comparables. And there's probably some interesting research and literature on this, like in, in housing markets, which are also comp-based, right. or other comp-based markets that kind of rely on like one sale right. to Art. set a market. Yeah. So the flip side of comps is that if you don't know how to analyze market trends or you know you're a global person you can get bogus comps that will perplex you now thankfully bogus comps especially egregious ones are often discarded as outliers because you know as anxious and eager as people are sometimes to get their hands on cards like i said they're also constrained by not wanting to be foolish so nonetheless, we still get trolls and shill bidding that will result in absurd auctions and absurd comps. So one example, on eBay right now, there is a Luca prison-based PSA 10 being auctioned off at one of the major auction houses, Probstein123. It has 24 hours left to go. It's at $810. And we just got done talking about how the market value and the comps on those are between $350 and $400. And there's bins on eBay between $400 and $500. And another example, Giannis Base Prison PSA 10 also being sold by Probstein123. It sold at auction for $2,500 yesterday. And when it sold, there were other PSA 10 copies on eBay that were available as buy it nows and as best offers for $2,000 or less. Yeah. I mean, there there is like a level of possible, you know, people shilling, right, for these auctions. But it's also just a level of people 
unfortunately, just not being informed and like just bidding on these bigger auction house. Yeah, they're, they're, I can definitely things. see a laziness yeah. dimension to this. It's a, it is. It's like they would rather buy this card from a reputable so like auction house than go bin one on eBay from like a random seller. And like they're paying the premium in that, and it's that laziness associated with it too. And they just think, oh well, like if somebody else is going to pay this much, then I might as well just keep, you know. So they're sort of thinking if they understand the logic of comps that hey, well, even if I pay so much more, well, it's going to create a comp, and so then other people are going to pay it too. It doesn't. Thankfully, it normally does not work that way. (laughs) Like that, Luca. Or that Giannis yeah. twenty five hundred, or especially that Luca. Well, like the Luca is like absurd. Like, yeah, right? that's going to end. That's going to go into sold and completed. Yeah, Everybody's going to laugh at it, yeah. and no one's going to pay that. Um, yeah, but new people to the hobby. Well, they'll see like, it. We're talking. Yeah. We're talking about. They're going to say like, "Oh wow, look at it! Yes. Could go for eight hundred. Yeah. So a five hundred dollar card well, is a deal. I mean, based upon what these like other base Chrome cards are going for, like. And the Giannis, you know, like, yeah, the pop reports aren't the same, but like, the fact of the matter is, is like, it's associated with that kind of a card. So, and they the don't know how to look at pop reports. No. And the, the marketplace is just going to make the determination. Like, yeah. you know, there's only so much you can do as a collector to even like think about the hobby. And you, there's a certain degree that it's just outside of the realm right now of like. Yeah. And those uh, vulnerabilities are what allow people to occasionally successfully shill an auction. Yeah. Is that <laughs> there are some people out there who will just one thing people will do is they'll just put a $1000 maximum bid on a $400 card assuming that everybody else is going to bid under $400 and this will just guarantee that they'll win. Right. And then that provides an opportunity for somebody to incrementally bid up right the auction until they push that person to their max and if you get somebody who's a little more intelligent, who will participate in pushing cards up only a little bit, only an incremental amount, so maybe you do one for $500, and then people say, oh, maybe that comp is within the margin of error, yeah. then you've got a more convincing comp. And that is definitely an inherent risk when you're talking about trying to track market behavior on cards that have a population of 2,000 copies that sell frequently or even 8,500 copies well, um, like the Luca Prism base. And then there's also the possibility that it, everybody just accepts it. And even if that sale wasn't legitimate, sales follow that are. And yeah. it can and become very complicated. There's always like that aspect, too, of like if you're a newcomer, we're just talking about like looking at comps like – Maybe this person was trying to find the comp for a PSA 10 Prism Luka Doncic. Right. And they found the silver and they're like, oh, well, the silvers are going for, you know, I don't know mm. what they're going for right now, like maybe 1500 or something. So they're like, oh, well, I'll just I'll pop my, you know, at least yeah, I'm definitely going to put $800 on it. Yeah. Like, you know, there's just always are, that possibility, you know, like. Oh, there is. And you know, these people are eager. Yeah. You know, and they're just so eager to, they see that. People that they look up to and respect and admire are discussing this. It's a very exciting market. They just want to get involved with it. They're not being diligent. They're not doing research. You know, they don't know how to look up pop reports. They don't know how to look up sales trajectories, period. And even if they do, they don't know how to look beyond eBay's 90 day window. They don't know how to look at cards from other sets and see if like those other sets are moving in the same direction. 
there's lots well, of layers plus, of complexity of the hobby that I think we take for granted. You also have someone who you respect who's telling you to get into the hobby who's right. making it seem urgent. Like, you need to buy this now so you can sell it later and make money. But, like, don't miss this boat, so make sure to buy it. Like, so I think that also, like, oh, I can buy a card for $800, even if it usually sells for 300 But I've been told I'll make two hundred and fifty grand if I follow the advice of X. So what's... now when I'm going to be rolling in the dough in six months. You know, someone that we've lost out or someone that we've overlooked in all this analysis, but that is so important to the ecosystem of the hobby is the person who initially buys that box and opens those packs. And those people have had a significant obstacle put up in front of them because of the investment nature that's being applied to like common cards like base cards. Yeah. It results in people going to Walmarts and to online retailers and just buying bulk quantities of product on the hopeful, you know, desire to see those go up in value. So like then you're talking about like multiple layers of derivative value, you know, yeah. <laughs> based on the cards contained in a product that may or may not be in there based on the market for singles of those cards, you know, ultimately setting the price of boxes and stuff like that. And I mean, yeah, and we de- were just talking about degenerate how we- card rippers are priced yeah. out of, uh, <laughs> gen- if, degenerate what? wax rippers are priced out of ripping wax. All right. So let's conclude the show by talking a little bit here in the third and final segment about the near term future of the card market. And so, First of all, I want to talk a little bit about the stock market as a predictor of the value of cards. Is there a correlation between the value of the of stocks and what they're trading at in the aggregate and the card market in the aggregate? And I remember, and um, of course we know that correlation is not causation, but I do remember there being a correlation uh, at the end of 2016 – um, when the stock market absolutely went nuts, that that corresponded to a price surge in Michael Jordan inserts, um, which was what I was sort of like very narrowly focused on at that time. But then we've had a really interesting test situation over the last few weeks, ostensibly due to the coronavirus, although I think there might be other causes, both among domestic and international participants in the stock market. The Dow Jones Industrial Average crashed from its 29,500 peak in mid-February to 24,800 last week. And that didn't make people feel particularly good when they looked at their 401ks and they saw that type of dip. So, you know, that's from mid-February to now. We just got done talking about these rookie cards and how, like, over that same period, Trey Young's rookie cards went up about 50%. Right. At the same time that the stock market, from the perspective of the stock market, was absolutely slumping um, to lose that sort of value over that period of time is uh, is substantial. Which if you t- put it in like card terms, like it's nothing, right? It's like, oh, well, you lost like, you know, 10% or 5%. Like it's, 
it's not a lot, but yeah. then for the mar- stock for the market, stock market, it's that's like, like wiping away. It's well, massive. The, yeah, it's a it's, it's a big massive. hit. It's yeah. a big hit, which is interesting. It kind of speaks to the volatility of cards and how it's accepted. Yeah, that there's going to be a dynamic range in cards. Now the Dow Jones Industrial Average has recovered, and there was like a really big spike just over the last day or two over when that when the uh, Dow was rallying as well. Um, but it's hard to see a correlation there because when that big plunge happened, uh, we didn't feel it in cards at all. Now maybe one explanation for that is because everybody is. Um, coming to see just how fantastic this hobby and collectibles are. And they all at once pulled all their money out of the <laughs> stock market and started buying Zion cards or something. But I, I don't think that happened. But I, what I do think though is that it's, it's very hard to see a correlation in a short term capacity when we have something like this happen. Yeah. Where we can very clearly point to, the cards of all the marquee players doing extremely well um, over the same time that the Dow Jones Industrial Average went down. But there's, of course, mitigating factors. So, yeah. like, there was Gary Vee tweeting for two days straight that, like, stimulated a lot of people to buy stuff. And there is this, like, new influx of people that's been, like, steady for the last few years and yeah. that still somehow seems to keep swelling to bigger and bigger numbers and bigger and bigger proportions. So I don't intend to extrapolate anything long-term from this because there are these mitigating factors, but I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that the stock market is a predictor of the card market in the short term or in the long term? I think like long-term that there could be some pretty like significant correlations. Like if you saw something where it was like a complete like economic crash, like 2008, I think you could see some kind of correlation there with cards and probably less money, um, either being kind of pumped into them or any kind of, from that standpoint, people just investing in it. But I think for things like this, where it's not like, yes, it's big market movements, but like that's not big enough to like affect cards. And the people that I think are investing mainly into the stock market aren't necessarily the people that are investing into cards either unless forced by work which is right me. through like yeah i mean my like everybody has a 401k right? out of my but like, paycheck i mean yeah i'd rather spend that money on cards but you're not like i mean <laughs> most people are not day trading their 401k like most people are just like i have i'm just putting that money in that gets taken out of my paycheck. I don't care. I'm going to retire in, you know, 20, 30 years and then, then I'll worry about it. Yeah. Otherwise, like, I have it all on like it. the riskiest stocks. Yeah. Because it's like the riskier, the more reward. Right. So like, I literally have it like, at like caution. You're <laughs> taking a lot of risk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a strategy for it's a strategy, uh, yeah. 20 to 30 year. You're right. Um, approach is like, that's yeah. one of the, strategies that are employed right now christine let me ask you yes is the coronavirus not the st- so like when we look at the stock market uh there's a theory that suggests that fears about the coronavirus were behind the decline in the dow jones industrial average over the last two to three weeks but there could be other causes as well so like one near-term correlation in the stock market and its fluctuations 
is uh, tied to the forthcoming presidential election. And if you kind of track the election betting odds and it right around the time when Joe Biden took over as the um, leading Democrat candidate, the stock market kind of seemed to perk back up a little bit. And there's a logic behind that. You know, Wall Street has favored candidates mm-hmm. that they would prefer over others. Right. Yeah, and whoever's going to make them the most money. Exactly. I mean, they don't. And won't tax them. Right. Because that's yeah. also key. Like so, hedge funds, man, hedge fund managers, like people who actually play the stocks as their sole income. Like they don't want to, they have a very low tax rate right now. If you, if your income is pure investments right. and profit from investments, if someone says we're going to raise that tax on your income, you're going to freak out a little and you're going to think like, maybe I need to make this more liquid or maybe I right. need to move this around. Right. So I think that it, it definitely plays into part what the candidate, who the candidate is and what their current platform is. Yeah. And because what- this is also, um, primaries and primaries play towards their bases and then usually when it's general election the candidates start meeting in the middle on right. certain topics obviously no the well, forthcoming I, election is, is something that i think uh people trading stocks are paying close attention to yeah i mean this this election any election right it's always like that cyclical nature of the election comes around and you're like the investors want they what they like is predictability and stability so like just the fact that like it's undetermined that at this date that it could go one or the other way for like who's going to be president is on like it's not stability for them so they're always going to have to build in risk profiles for those scenarios and you know if certain candidates have certain economic policies they're going to base their investment, you know, profiles on that. Right. Right. Like think about if a candidate came out and was like, I think eBay should tax the sports cards, which are their major income. Most of the sales on eBay are are sports cards. Don't start talking. (laughs) You're starting to give people ideas. Don't even put this in a public consciousness. But that, that like terror you just felt yeah. that's what people who play the stock market feel uh, when right. people point. start talking about it well, how about like this? even just talking about it and they're like whoa 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 why are you even mentioning us like why are you mentioning my market like get please back away well, you know yeah. how there's such thing as like single issue voters yes and single issue candidates yes you know? where's the candidate that says i'm ending all ebay fees <laughs> <laughs> i'm ending the buyer sales tax on ebay and, um, you know, we're going to make sports cards great again. <laughs> well, I think the candidate you're looking for is named Gary V. Ooh, Gary V for president. Yeah, I like that. Okay, so back to the coronavirus and how we're all going to die. The coronavirus is totally impacting the stock market at the moment because uh, I've, read, I've read a couple articles about this because I'm following it on different levels, um, including how soon and we're all going to die and how much food I should stock up in our house because we might all be quarantined to our homes. And um, in our house, we've never really had to worry about stocks of food. No, my freezer's packed full of like lasagnas and enchiladas and like stuff I could just put in the oven. Well, and I know where like, I'm coming. Yeah. <laughs> 
and like we also live in earthquakes central so i also have like plenty of water and things like protein bars so that we could survive can nice. um we might lock you out though brian so <laughs> <laughs> just kidding you're welcome and as long as you bring your lucas yeah <laughs> just me and your box that's your that just <laughs> That's my ticket. That's your ticket in is the National Treasures box. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I don't you want to survive? Might just die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to survive? Uh I get to open this. Um okay, so tourism in Europe has gone down significantly since February. Uh there's a difference of about 1 million hotel rooms, 1 million across Europe because of the coronavirus. Well, tourism industries are saying it's because of the coronavirus italy has closed schools and museums across the north because of the outbreak the louvre in paris the most popular museum in the world well known is closed for the foreseeable future because the staff is worried about the virus france is banning public gatherings over five thousand. they canceled a half marathon of forty thousand people this past weekend Switzerland is banning events over 1,000 people. Tehran in Iran has banned concerts and sporting events. South Korea, the churches have closed and authorities are looking to rein in public gatherings. Dozens of schools across Washington, Oregon, and Idaho have been closed because of the virus. Art auctions are rescheduling. Uh, in America? All over the world. Like all like all the biggest art auctions that usually happen around this time and over the next three months are being rescheduled to June and July and even further out or just have a rescheduled listed, but no date has yet been set. This is auctions and shows and museums are closing. So we have all of these things happening around the world where people are kind of freaking out. And I think a lot of it, like, let's be honest, is totally like hyperbolic like it's like oh my god it's we're hysteria. gonna die yeah, yeah it's hysteria but um i mean i'm i'm not buying it but i'm totally prepping for it yeah <laughs> because um we live in los angeles it's a pretty large international city yeah. uh if something were to happen like we could potentially see the effects so this makes me wonder what does it mean for the hobby we have Countries who are canceling sports, canceling events with people. We have CJ McCollum on Twitter saying he's not autographing anything from this point forward and telling people to wash their hands for at least 20 seconds with soap and water, which PSA, public service announcement, you're supposed to sing happy birthday twice when washing your hands um, <laughs> with soap. Do you do that? Yes, every time. <laughs> Every time I've uh, spent a lifetime of cultivating resistance antibodies, no, uh, yeah. uh, by antibodies. only washing my hands uh, for the first measure of um, happy. Birthday. I thought he was going to say only washing my hands in the shower because I'm pretty sure. Yeah. No, I would never want to tell like the whole world that I never wash my hands <laughs> <laughs> because I do all the time, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, you got the you got the flu like a month ago, and uh, it didn't make it to me. It did not. So, but that's know? because I'm a cleanly person. It's not because he's like some like 
amazing immune system. It's because every time I touched my face or coughed or blew my nose, like I ran over to the sink and washed my hands. I Lysoled everything I touched. Like I got out of the shower and I would Lysol everything. Like, <laughs> like I just, I kept a clean space so that it wouldn't spread. Brian came over during that time. Did yeah. Brian get the flu? Not to my knowledge. So there you go. Like, yeah. Well, maybe his immune system got <laughs> built up too. Yeah. It's that Midwest immune system. Okay, so what does this mean for the hobby? All of these things happening. What does it mean for shows that are upcoming? The upcoming upcoming Chicago event. And what about national? Some of these things that are they're canceling are a few months out. And now we're looking at like the US getting nervous and people talking, businesses talking about how to telecommute all of their employees. So you have to think like, will you brave the chance of going to a card store if there's like a semi-mandatory quarantine happening all over the country? And like, what about the finals in June, what what happens to basketball events and MLS and XFL and baseball well, starting? I'll, I mean, shout out to XFL. Shout out XFL. <laughs> I think, I mean, they'll still happen regardless, like for the big ones. Right? I mean, like, just, will there be attendance? Like, I think so. Do you think that the U.S. like and this is one thing I also want to ask, like, we're a very different country than some of these countries that are putting in these mandatory bans. Um, We're very individualistic and very like FU government of a country. Even like the most liberal person in America is like half libertarian in a certain, in, in a certain degree of like, don't trust the government. So would this actually work if the government said, you cannot attend a basketball game, but we'll air it on TV. I don't. That is not something the government would do. It would be too, like, top-down against our freedoms kind of thing. And there would be no incentive for the leagues, really, to want that because they wouldn't make, make any money in attendance. Well, I mean, but pandemic levels happen, right? And, like, people get sick and they come... The coronavirus, you're contagious for two weeks before you start showing the first symptom. Right. So people who are coming back from traveling in Italy, in Japan, in South Korea, and in China, those are just four countries off the top of my head, you are told when you come home to quarantine yourself for two weeks. Right. Thailand's included. Philippines, I think, are included. There are so many Iran. Right. Like, there are so many that are included in this like two week self contained quarantine that you're told. And then you have people if you're in the area of someone who is pos- like tested positive, you're quarantined on a military base. Like you're not even given the option of staying. Okay, home. okay, okay. So your question is if people in this country yeah. are instructed by the government and like, to stay inside. Yeah. Like, will they? And then your part of your answer or your uh, addendum to the question was, you know, considering the individualism that permeates uh, belief systems in our society. Yes. And so I would say, well, take that individualism and apply it. And one of the uh, roots of individualism or one of the potential roots of it is self-interest mm-hmm. and people will follow their self-interest um, with respect to avoiding 
obtaining a virus if it is as bad as it's being portrayed to them as being so even if tickets to the finals were twenty dollars well so then you have <laughs> then you have like competing <laughs> right interests like, yeah, that people are gonna have to resolve interest. but also like if there's a you know the government has the um to borrow a phrase from libertarians monopoly on force in other words they can make you stay inside if they want to but We've run a little far afield we have. with this line of questioning based on We've gone a little political. the content <laughs> and philosophical. Of, this, uh, of this show. So to tie back into the Please, hobby. Please, DM me with your thoughts. <laughs> to tie back into the hobby, you know, the question is, it, will the coronavirus worries impact the hobby? And like you rightly pointed out that I think there are people concerned who are flying into O'Hare or the Chicago Spectacular. And like, okay, the Atlantic City... National is a little too far away. But buy travel insurance, people. But, but pe- buy well, travel insurance. Saying. People are making their reservations. Exactly. And they have to start thinking about stuff like this. Um, but I'll tell you this. We we are in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bullpen card shop, which held the trade night on Saturday night, is located right next to LAX, um, which is you know one of the great international hubs. Uh, LA is a great international city. And so you know we braved the elements. And uh, we went out on Saturday night to the bullpen and it was the most well-attended trade night i think that i've ever been to i don't think the fears are uh, holding people back yet and if anybody saw your instagram live stream from that event it was like you know people were packed inside there yeah it was like body to body yeah, yeah. so and we're still standing so, I mean, two so, weeks. Yeah, right. We'll we'll let you know in two weeks. If the House of Jordan's <laughs> podcast never reaches episode twenty-two, you know, <laughs> you'll know you'll why. know why. I mean, I think really with this market, it's just everything's anticipation built into the either presidency election or just like the coronavirus in general. Like if it's going to have like a negative effect on production and means of production, which. Like, if people do get sick and there's, like, a substantial amount of people that are sick from the virus that, like, cannot go into work for jobs that they need to be in work for, like, manufacturing, then, like, yeah, it could have a downturn. But, like, you have to think about it from the sense that the economy and the markets are also going to be in lower demand for certain things. So like one of those things would be like maybe air travel, right? So then that in itself is going to have an effect on not needing a high demand of new manufactured planes, right? So it almost has an effect of like canceling out there. Or we need brand new ones because all the old ones are contaminated. <laughs> well, I did hear they were buying like uh, industrial cleaner now to, to clean the planes. Yeah, and American Airlines has canceled all flights into Milan. Okay, yeah. All U.S. flights into Milan have been canceled. All right, so can we end on a positive note? Yeah, we're totally going to be fine, guys. It's the flu times one, like which is the flu. Uh, it's a bad cold. I've spoken to doctors at work. Um, I work for UCLA, as people know. So Ronald Reagan Hospital is like the hospital in LA, one of. And I've spoken to physicians and faculty. Did you ask them what the prospects are for the Atlantic City National? I I did not. Um, (laughs) They didn't know (laughs) what it was. I asked, but they didn't know what it was. You're going to be fine. Wash your hands. Avoid contact with sick people. If you're traveling and you're coming into the U.S., quarantine yourself for two weeks. 
FMLA. You quarantine will yourself for a little longer, actually. Well, yeah. <laughs> just quarantine, just go two months. You know? <laughs> we won't. We'll, we won't mind. We're we're all gonna be fine. We're I mean, gonna be fine. So if like people are, are more inside their houses and more just you know watching entertainment, watching more movies, sports. Maybe they're going to be on eBay more and spend more time buying cards. Like, See, yes. that's the like, take I'm looking for. Like, this is going to make the reality. card market stronger. Yeah, I mean, like and people also, like want to do. They're going to be bored. Don't worry about your packages, even if they're coming from overseas. Especially if they're coming from overseas, the virus can only live on inanimate objects for uh, 48 hours, supposedly. Hmm. That's what they they are reporting now. So, 48 hours. And the virus dies on packages. So don't but overnight ship. what happens ship. if you get a card overnighted and you just can't I just said wait. don't overnight <laughs> ship. There are a few cards that I would risk the coronavirus for just to have that day <laughs> earlier. You know what I mean? There's a few. Which is wise. Was that an alert from the government telling us that we're being quarantined? Yeah. <laughs> it's mainly my PC saying my battery's low. Yeah. Almost. All right. Well, uh, that concludes episode 19 of the House of Jordans podcast. Always going in new directions for you guys. Cough into your elbow. Watch out for feedback loops. Vote for Gary V. Don't vote for Gary V. Also, don't leave your house for the next two months. And wash your hands. Happy birthday twice. Or just for one measure and have a robust immune system. I hear if you drink Coronas, you can't get the virus. <laughs>